Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Van. With me is the mad lad himself, Justin Mason. Beep, 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 beep. What's up, man? Hey, Dan, it's, it's, it's great to be back, man, for another chapter here of Aeronauts Winless. Now, look, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been together. Uh, scheduling's been crazy. Everything's been crazy. Doesn't matter. Hey, dude, no excuses. Doesn't matter. We're regular ass people. We put it out when we put it out, homie. Hey, I'm glad to be back, though. And, you know, I got to tell you, man, this book's been just kind of sitting in the back of my mind here. We're on Chapter 5. Chapter 5. Spire, Spire Albion, Habble Morning. Let's dive right in. Take us in, Dan. Summary. Bridget regarded the nobleman uncertainly. I'm not at all sure about this, sir. Benedict Sorlin Lancaster stood facing her in the gloom of what could only loosely be considered early morning in Habble morning's marketplace outside the training compound of the spire arcs guard he was a tall man as tall as her father but lean with youth and natural inclination benedict gave her a smile that probably meant to be reassuring but it showed a little too much of his larger than average canine teeth that's the problem isn't it he said you aren't sure and you need to be come on then i need to assess what kind of physical strength you have you'll not hurt me miss tagwin i assure you so uh, can I just clarify? Yes. Is Benedict is that the person that oh god what's cousin I, I can't cousin Benedict me. of Gwen? That's the person Gwen was Lancaster. training with, and that her mom was kind of like ah oh, ah oh. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and that he's, person okay okay yeah, yeah. he's the uh, what do they call Less that than savory start? No, he's the oh, I've, they're gonna say it in this chapter uh, like something born. You know? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I got something you. born. I got you. He's like a cat, cat born or something. Yeah, uh, you know, I got you. We'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> this chapter begins with Benedict putting Bridget through some private training, and Bridget oh, is yeah. the girl from the Vattery. And warrior born, warrior born. Yep. Sorry, that's okay. Good. That's what we needed. So he knows that she will be dueling Reginald, and wants to help her out by giving her some lessons in open hand combat. Maybe upon his cousin Gwen's request, because remember, at the end of chapter four, the last chapter, they team up up and Gwen's like, yo, I'm going to help you any way I can. I don't want your help. No, no, you need help. Yeah. And I imagine that Gwen went to Benedict and is like, yo, you taught me. Let's teach this girl. Let's see what happens. She's in trouble. So he tells Bridget that normally you have to wait until after the initial training course to start. But there's no hard rules on using your own time of, uh, ahead of schedule for instruction. He's talking about uh, learning the hand-to-hand combat. Normally, they go through that two-week training or the month training progress that they're they're going through right now. They're new to the Spire Arcs Guard. Normally, you finish the training. The What do they call in the military, the initial training? They call it basic um, training. Boot, boot camp, basic yep. training, yeah. So once, they, once you're done with that, then they're... In this version, in Spyrarch's Guard, then they start doing hand-to-hand. But Benedict says, yo, there's nothing stopping you from your own free time getting some instruction, so don't feel bad. So Bridget is intimidated by Benny's warrior-born features. There's a funny little part where he smiles and his canines seem a little too big, and she is reluctant to start, but, uh, but Benny is patient with her and tells her to start by simply picking him up. No problem for Bridget. She easily throws him over one shoulder and compares his weight to a slab of meat from the battery. Like in the book, she's just like, yeah, he doesn't weigh much more than slab of meat. Meanwhile, Benny's just like, 
Yeah, that's the thing. So she I tosses the next him. Brock Lesnar. <laughs> yeah, she tosses him to the ground. And so when she turns around to face Benedict, he was sitting on the floor, staring at her with his mouth slightly open. Anime moment there, like, uh, 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 you know. <laughs> he remarks that she's a uh, rather fit, and she quickly retorts that she works for a living. And she didn't mean it. Yeah, she didn't mean it to come off as accusing him um that he yeah uh but to her relief she uh benedict took no insult to that in fact the wheel starts spinning for benny and how exactly they could use her strengths to their advantage in the upcoming duel so this is from the book but no anger touched his eyes this is in relation to her saying i work for a living like (laughs) excuse me so no anger touched his eyes instead his face spread into a slow delighted smile Oh, maker of ways, he breathed, and the sound flooded out into a bubbling laugh. Bridget liked the way his laugh sounded. She found her mouth tugging up into a small smile. I beg your pardon, sir? We should issue tickets to this duel, he said. Reggie could spend his whole life trying and still not live it down. I beg beg your pardon, she repeats. Whatever do you mean? The duel, the young man said. He challenged you which means that you have the right to choose the location of the duel and the weapons used. So you're saying there's a chance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that we could win this duel, which if is you pretty cool. in the heart of the cards, yes. Yeah. So we get a, And we also get a little shipping here of Bridget liking Benny's laugh, so possible romance brewing here. I mean, he's warrior-born, so he's, you know, super tough and strong, and she's a battery-born. You know what I'm saying? She's slanging those slabs of meats. And so she's pretty strong, strong enough to make Benny surprised. Well, she knows her way around a slab of meat. I I don't know why you would laugh at that, Dan. That's the truth. She knows her way around a slab of meat. She knows her way around a hunk of meat, basically, is Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. So it turns out, according to the duelist rules, the person who... Actually, Dan, what you could say is she knows how to handle meat. Just saying just saying yeah i think i think you could say that safely (laughs) so turns out according to the duelist rule set the person who is challenged gets to choose the location and weapons benedict smart smartly suggests unarmed combat which is awesome so she doesn't know hand-to-hand combat uh but he tells her that he does and he will teach her all joking aside can i just want to make a comment this is really smart character building because it mm. shows how smart benny is first of all and this is really smart build up for you because the moment this happens the moment she gets herself into the situation you're wondering dude how are you going to win this like how are you going to come out of this on top there's no way and then this happens you're just like there's actually a chance not you're saying there's a little chance like there's actually a yeah. chance she can win well that's the thing you get that you get that feeling because when the chapter starts you just imagine that Benedict was rolling up to that training site. Like, yeah, I'll do my best Gwen, but uh, you know, this is, this is a, this is a trainee versus a veteran. So we'll just, you know, whatever we'll do the best we can. And then she tosses him over like a, like a slab of meat. And that's when he's like, Oh dude. And like his canines are sticking out and he's like, yeah, this is, we got something here. It's go time. Yeah. 
So she doesn't know hand-to-hand combat, and like I said, he's gonna he does and he is gonna teach her. Then Gwen rolls up and Benny greets her with a dearest cuz. You look rather Gwenish today. So very like um you know, Smart sibling, man. sibling fucking yeah. thing there going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. She responds by raising an eyebrow and asking, Why are you on the ground? And Benny is delighted to reply, She threw me here. Like a dude, she threw me here. That and I'm uh, proud of it. Yeah. The cousins start excitedly uh, riffing off one another about how surprisingly great Bridget's strength is and how exactly to employ it as a winning tactic in the duel. But since they are cousins and grew up together, they're speaking in that speedy, familiar way that siblings do and leaving Bridget feeling put off. She tells them that it feels like they're talking about a book she hasn't read. So they're sitting there going, dude, like, I mean, obviously we got to do unarmed combat, right? And he's like, yeah, dude, of course we do that. And then she picks this location, blah, 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 you know, and Bridget's like, what the heck are you guys even talking about? Yeah, it's kind of like they read a book and are talking about it and she has no idea. Right. I didn't just pull that from the book. I swear. Uh, Bridget gets a reassuringly honest apology from Gwen about how she probably wasn't raised to be as ruthless and deceptive as them. Then Raoul comes rolling in from who knows where and hops onto Bridget's shoulder, but he comes with a bit of intel. So from the book. Listen carefully, little mouse, Raoul said in an almost inaudible tone. I have sought word upon these two. They are dangerous. And then we get some insight on what might have he actually meant. What are you giggling about over there? I First of all, we got to break the fourth wall. I freaking love your cat reading voice. Yeah, well, it's like deep and slow because they just do their own thing. At the- Listen carefully, little, little mouse. mouse. And, and I'm just like, oh everything's articulated. I, well, I, I can't take credit for that because from the audio version of this book, um, the narrator, he does it like that. And it just sticks That's- in my mind. I just love when you do that. Dude. I'm sorry, man. I just I'm kind of geeking out tonight. Oh, it's awesome. I'm, I'm I'm so glad to be back, dude. And this was a really fun chapter. So it's great character building. So um, Raul lets him know that they're dangerous. Okay, and then we get some insight on what that might actually mean, coming from a cat and not from a person. Being called dangerous by a cat could mean a great many things, but it was generally uh, delivered as something of a compliment. She had learned long ago not to treat cat a cat's opinion lightly. This that's from the book where Bridget's discussing what that might mean. So for Raoul to roll up and be like, "I did some research on these guys. They're dangerous, and I like, like that." They know, like they know what's up. Yeah, I like that. So Bridget then asks Gwen to continue explaining what's going on, and she explains that if Bridget can come even close to winning, uh, to matching Reggie's strength during the duel that it's a win-win. Bridget says she doesn't care if she wins or loses. She just wants to be done with the whole thing, which makes Gwen smile. Benny chimes in to elaborate. The point is, Benedict said, raising, uh, rising easily to his feet, that if you can offer him anything like a real fight, there's no way he can win the duel. If he defeats you barehanded, it, it likely won't be by much, and he'll look like a brute and a bully. And if you defeat him... And if you defeat him, he'll forever be the Aster who was beaten soundly by, and he trails off. Benedict broke off and gave Bridget a slight smile. By the Vattery Trog, Bridget said. She smiled slightly. That 
would be quite the vile thing to do to him. So, yes, like she's in the last chapter, we kind of got established that, you know, Bridget's the quiet one. She's got a cat. Everybody knows she's from a battery. She's not from one of the high, high houses. You know what I mean? She's from a house that's kind of fallen gently from grace. Not yeah. not in the bad way, but just kind of like fallen into irrelevance. But Bridget doesn't actually like the idea and says she won't do it. She's not going to fight him. She doesn't feel right humiliating someone like that. Or she doesn't. she's not going to fight him like that uh, where it's just basically her strength against his. She doesn't feel right humiliating someone like that, especially someone who could hold a grudge towards her and make trouble for her father in the future. Gwen and Benny share a look that make that makes Bridget feel like she's missed something again. Then Gwen invites them to get some food before Inquisition class in a half hour. This is a great part of the scene. After reading this short bit, I was like, holy crap, that was awesome. Let me say, uh, yeah. we get to see that, you know, Bridget's got some brains for sure. Because, you know, this whole scene's going on. And she's like, well, I don't really want to make him look like a fool because it could come back to my dad. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's kind of. That's kind of selfless and thoughtful, honestly. Yeah, and she shouldn't. Have, she shouldn't have stood up to the Aster, though. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got you. I got you. I got you. And you know, I, I was kind of thinking about this too, and I'm just like, how the hell is she gonna come out of this? You know, what's? And then you know, like they come up with something for her, and it's like she's she's not on board because she doesn't want to make her family look any worse than she already has. Yeah, she gets it. She knows that this would be a good win-win, but she is really concerned that, like, they're already on their kind of last leg as the as the house tag win. If she makes a bad guy of Reginald Astor, that could have further repercussions down the line. I have a prediction. Predict. I'm going to throw this out there. Do it. I'm, I got my little fishing net, and I'm going to throw it into the water. Okay. She's going to get with Reggie. No. Yep. You think so? I know so. Wow. Hmm. Because that's, that's how I would write it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Let's, let's, put, let's put that on the list of predictions. To be, to be totally fair, this is the last chapter I have read. Excellent. Me too. That's, that's what I mean. Like, this is my blind prediction. Yeah. I mean, well, I've, I've read the whole book, obviously. But um, I really do enjoy hearing your perspective from a first-time reader. I wish I had someone explaining to me what the heck spire arcs were and shit like that when I first started reading because <laughs> I was just like, all right, you know. Um, but anyway, so we get this awesome scene. And so if uh, let's, let's, uh, let's pull it up for the viewers at home. I'm going to read the passage directly from the Kindle version here. And uh, if you're following along, let's see, what page is this on? Looks like page 58 of the book, if you want to pull that up. I'm, I'm there right now, yep. Okay, so this is uh, coming from uh, Gwen after talking about how um, Bridget doesn't want to do the fight that way. They're, they look at each other, and, and then Gwen's going to move on to the next thing because she knows that this is probably a dead-end conversation at this point. Food, Gwendolyn suggests suddenly. The two of you came out here so early, you missed breakfast call. Inquisition classes in half an hour, and you don't want to run on an empty stomach after that. She looked up at Raoul and added, And for you as well, Master Cat, I'm buying. Raoul said smugly, This one has her priorities well sorted. Tell her my favorite food. Raoul, Bridget said, That is not how one goes about such things. 
She looked up to find both the Lancasters staring at her. You speak cat, Benedict said. I mean, I'd heard that some people claim to do it, but for goodness sake, you sounded exactly like a cat just now. He has no idea how terrible your accent is, Raul observed. <gasps> I loved it. I loved it. It's like, okay, like, oh, man. I was so happy when that scene occurred because up until then, we don't know how people are going to react to how Bridget. Cats. Yeah. To talking cats in general, um, to Bridget being so close to one, all that kind of stuff. So, um, what did you think about that? I actually, this part actually <clears throat> resonated with me pretty good. I liked this whole scene. And then actually, let's look at what's down. Let's look at what's right after that. Bridget rolled her eyes at the cat and said to Benedict, yes, of course. Do you not have any cats in residence at House Lancaster? Certainly not. Gwendolyn said, mother wouldn't hear of it. Yeah. Like, you can see the class differentiation. It's, <sighs> how do I use a real life example? It, it's almost nah, like garbage men, like garbage men are awesome. They, sure, they pick up sure, our garbage, like, but everyone goes, you don't want to end up like a garbage man. It's like, what's the fuck yeah. wrong with garbage men? It's like, dude, they work for the city. They got, you never see them. They get all vacation yeah. benefits. Yeah. Yeah. They all got good jobs, but yeah. So, you know, I, I think about this and I'm like, there is some serious class division going on here. And like, see these two, Gwendolyn Benedict, they're cool with it. Like, they're like, yep. okay, you know, whatever, we can handle this. But, like, if it was maybe, like, I guess I'll call them boomers. If it was maybe, like, one of the boomers and one of the older people, they'd probably be like, oh, a cat? Ugh, not in my residence. You know, like, what? Yeah. I, I liked, I really liked this scene. Dan, what did you think? Yeah, I thought the same thing. Um, so I wrote this. I love this because we don't know up until this point how the others would react to Bridget's being able to communicate with Raul. Like, would they write her off and call her crazy or what? Like, I didn't know. Like, they could have eat. Jim Butcher could have easily just been like, uh, you know, the reaction from Gwen and Benedict being, oh, she's just a crazy girl that thinks she can talk to cats. But instead, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. it's just it's great because they accept it. And um, in turn, they're accepting Bridget and we start to have a good team here. Like, they're just like, OK, we're on board. There was part of me that was like, so wait. Does she have like a condition? I'm not trying to be insensitive, right. but does she have like a condition where like she she breathed she in too much battery cat? meat, or or no, juice? like because she's so lonely, she has to make up like fake friends and stuff, like, and her dad has to talk really like down, yep. and basic, low level to her. Like I was thinking about that, and I, I, like that was a possibility to me at first. Like maybe she's really just that naive, and the cats can't actually talk. But then this part, I was like. Oh shit, that's a real thing. Yeah, it's awesome. It's nice and lighthearted and and allows you to move on with it without dragging it on. I mean, even you could make some interesting story with like crazy cat girl talking to herself, but I like this version better. And it's and it's especially nice because like it seems like everything in this world has some other tie-in. So like with the um, with the crystals in Gwen's family, the Lancaster that make crystals. Well, the crystals run the ships. They also run the guns. You know, with uh, the cats. Yeah. You know, they kind of run around in the background. There's a lot of history that we don't know about them. But you also have Warrior Born, which their primary physical traits are cat-like. You know what I mean? So, like, it's all – I like how they connect these things together where you have these kind of weird things that actually work in the setting itself. Like, you know, on its surface, a 
talking cats is kind of weird, but when you combine it with the fact that humans can be like mutated to also be cat like to make them better at stuff, it's kind of nice because it, it, it simplifies these potentially like, oh, in, in this book, we got this mechanic, we got this mechanic, we got this magic system, we got crystals. Instead of making it seem so vast, it's actually kind of bringing it all together, which is nice. So yes. the chapter concludes with the discussion of cats and at House Lancaster, like you were just getting at. Gwen says that they don't have cats because Mother wouldn't hear of it. But to her surprise, Benny says, actually, in fact, they do have cats that work in the house out of some very old arrangement. So cats go way back and they maintain old arrangements, which is cool. This is a cool way to like intertwine real world things like cats hunting for mice and yep. stuff with this fantasy world and having it be like almost like a like an exchange, right? Yeah, well like, I like the cool. idea that they have an old arrangement that has been set in place to the point where it just runs itself and there's these cats that are probably second or third generation, maybe even fourth that are like, yeah, we do it for Lancaster because we've always done it for Lancaster. You know what I mean? And we have a little, we have a little background in history that says, oh yeah, this goes way back. This dates way back. And as a reader, you're immediately like, oh, okay, I'll accept it. You yep. don't ask too many questions because it's been established. Now it's like, oh, this is how it is. So like, it's not, yeah. So it's not just that Gwen and Benedict are cool people and they're cool with it. No, there's actually like known info on cats. And they do hold their word and stuff like that. And by showing that history right here, it gives us like a proof that this is a, is real and tangible in this world rather than just something that is unique to these people, which I like a lot because in stories, it's very difficult um, to have characters that aren't all superheroes, you know, aren't all. They all have this unique special trait, you know, this brings it back down to earth a little bit or brings it back down to spire a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so. Uh, then Gwen asked to properly introduce herself to Raoul, not realizing that they may have been breaching some sort of etiquette by not properly exchanging names. Bridget explains the request to Raoul, who is hesitant at first, but then asks the, what Wordkeeper would think of Gwen, Wordkeeper being Bridget's dad. Mm -hmm. So Bridget smiles. This is from the book. Bridget smiles slightly. She knew precisely how her father would treat Miss Lancaster. He would ask her for tea and extend all courtesy. Raoul nodded his head sharply once, a very human gesture. Then I will also extend courtesy. Tell her my name and that she has not yet earned a cat name of her own, but that breakfast is a good start. Bridget turned to Gwendolyn and said, Miss Lancaster, this is Raoul of the Silent Paws tribe, Kit Tamal, chief of the Silent Paws. A prince of his house, as are you, as you are of yours, cuz, Benedict noted. So, um, basically, Benedict is trying to get the point across to Gwen a little bit more. Hey, this, this guy's actually got some rank in his tribe, just like you have rank in your house. So, like, not too different. So now they're extending courtesy to the cat, knowing that they have a way of communication and stuff like that, whatever. Uh, then they all prepare to head to breakfast before class, Raoul not completely open to trusting the Lancaster, but admits that, admits that a free breakfast is a very good start. So. I love it. What do you think about the chapter? Dude, here's the thing. I like this chapter. We talk about this all the time. You don't always need swords, guns, explosions, killing, and violence to have an interesting chapter. Listen, that's important 
to a good, exciting, action-packed fantasy story. But you know, dude, at the end of the day, character interactions like this and character building like this, which I think Jim Butcher does so damn well, is just as important. This chapter, I read the whole thing, had me hooked. Read the whole thing in one sitting, and I'm like, yeah. can I get another chapter just like that? Because yeah. it's fantastic. I really liked how Jim sews in little bits of intrigue and world building. Like when yes. when the three of them are talking about the duel and Bridget basically says she doesn't give a shit about it if she wins. She just wants it to be done. Gwen's response yep. from the book is Gwendolyn blinks and uh, suddenly flashed Bridget a smile that looked as warm and as true as an aeronaut's sunrise. So I like that because it says so much about just adding arrow knots to the front of it that it has a um, like he could have just said her her smile is as bright as like a sunrise. But because she put air or he put arrow knots in front of it, it's an adjective which gives it a unique that is unique to this setting. So it infers a broader message. They've got their yep. own sayings in this world, but it's not so fantastic to not be understood. So by saying yep. that. It like it brings you into this world more. So that's what I'm talking about, like sucking you in, sewing in the little, um, the little making, things, making you feel like you're a part of the world as you read this. Yeah, almost like you're, almost like you're, like when he uses phrases like "aeronaut sunrise," it would only make sense in this book. Exactly, it wouldn't make sense in any other book, at least without explanation. It makes you feel like you're reading the book in that world. Yeah, you feel like I love it. There must be some like songs and stuff that aeronauts sing, and they and they sing about the girl with the the smile of the aeronaut sunrise. Da, 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 you know, like there's like it, it just makes you feel like the world is bigger, and it's nice. So speaking of world building, would you like to go deeper on more examples from this chapter? What would you like to go deeper on? Let's start with Warrior Born. So Benedict gave her a smile that. He probably meant to be reassuring, but it showed a little too much of his larger-than-average canine teeth. Uh, so we're learning about Warrior Borns here. So this is kind of the world building. Like, what what do we know about Warrior Born? Well, we're learning a little bit more. So not only are they lean, fit, and strong, and agile, but they also their canines are just a little bit longer. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of remind me of like Miri Cat Warrior from Magic: The Gathering. Do you have that card on hand? I don't know which one that is. Don't have that card on hand, but anybody wants to Google it, they'll know what I'm talking about. Sweet. Um, Benedict's golden, vertically slit eyes showed him to be warrior-born with the blood and strength of lion lions in his limbs. So you know he's, he's a, super he's strong. He's a beast. He's a beast. Uh, let's go to uh, the meat vats. We learned a little bit about meat vats in this chapter. He wasn't much heavier than a slab of red meat from one of the large vats back home. This implies different sizes of the vats in the operation. So this is small, but Benny says later that while he was sitting on the... Okay, so what I'm what I'm saying with that is by saying that it's one of the large vats is as, um, as heavy as one of the red meats from one of the large vats, now you're like, oh, of course, there's a whole operation to the vats. There's going to be small vats, large vats. They got vats in the corners. You know what I mean? So now your your brain is automatically, if you allow it to, swirling off like mine did and thinking about how is a battery run and how would they deliver it to people and how long does it take to cook a large vat of red meat and that kind of shit. So that's really nice. And like I said, just sewn in there. It's a basic throwaway, almost throwaway sentence. If you want to go deep, you can. I love that kind of stuff. 
You know, Dan, you and I have talked about this so many times. My favorite part about this podcast, obviously, it's the fact that I actually get to read. But also, my my real favorite part about this podcast is that you have the ability to make something that is insignificant more significant. But what it is supposed to be that most people will miss. They will. Most people miss that. I, I missed it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think about that and I'm just like, because I always think like, oh, we got the bats. Here's a bat. There's a bat. Everywhere's a bat. bat They're bat. all the same. They all look the same. Same colors, same operation, same meat size. Everything's the same. Nothing's different. But then I'm just like, that's probably not the case the more I think about it. So let's go deeper. Oh, God. Here we go. Okay. So uh, this is very small. But Benny says later, while sitting on the ground after he was tossed, but she works in a battery. I don't suppose I weigh. She's talk, He's talking to Gwen saying like how we got there, but she works in a battery. I don't suppose I weigh much more than a side of red meat. Do I miss Bridget? Him knowing the specifics of what kind of meat his weight, his weight equates to implies that Benedict is knowledgeable either in maybe maybe he's been there. Exactly. So either in general spire knowledge, just like, yeah, batteries have large, small, blah, blah, blah. So now you're, so it's just this thing that we were just talking about earlier. That's just clicking for me. You're introducing a concept that extends the world and then you're backing it up with like proof. And the proof is that Benny knows about vats. And yeah, I probably don't weigh much more than that. Or that he specifically looked into Bridget herself. So it's one of two things. Either with his, he's a veteran in the Spire Arcs Guard. So either they just have to know in general, they have classes about the operations of the Spire, which is fine. Or once he learned that he had to work with Bridget to try to get her ready for the duel, Maybe he did some digging because they do imply in this chapter that he's ruthless. Uh, the Lancasters are ruthless, cunning, um, and Raul even says they're dangerous. Dangerous. So if Raul can go get information, what would stop Benedict from getting information himself? Nothing. So it's like we still don't know that much about this world. No. In chapter six. So chapter five. So Benedict, I don't know. Maybe he's a spy or some shit. Anyway. Or maybe he used to be. So let's talk about the style of combat. Stop. Stop. What if that's why mother doesn't like Benedict? Why? Because he's a cat? Or because he's a spy? Because he used to be a spy. Ooh. I mean, I don't know if you could use to be a spy Dude, that goes deep. I know it does. Deep dive or tinfoil hat style. Um, That's what the podcast is about, though. Yeah. It's... That is an interesting I, – I really actually don't remember what his roles are or if he has any specific roles because the way the book goes, I can't – I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but Thank it does you. not go the way that you expect. I'll just say that. So let's talk about the style of fighting, the way, as it's called, as we learned about earlier. So this was first mentioned by Cousin Benedict after being easily tossed over Bridget's shoulder and says she and after she says she works for a living. He's his astonished response is, Oh, maker of ways. Later, so like, you know, you know, we learned from the first chapter that Gwen learned the way from Benedict. And now he's saying, just like instead of saying, like, oh my God, he's saying, Oh, maker of ways. So later, when Bridget admits that she knows nothing of hand-to-hand combat and asks, wouldn't she lose? Benny's response is, that depends on what path you take. Bridget then says, my path? You aren't going to attempt to convert me to your religion, are you? 
He laughs easily and responds, those who follow the way have no need to proselytize. One does not convert to the way. One simply realizes that one already follows the way. So the way seems to be seen as a religion to those who are not in it. But to me, it comes off as like a Buddhist monk type stuff. You know, where like the Buddhist monks, they probably don't see it as like a religion. This is just their way of living and trying to get closer to whatever creation is or whatever. You know what I mean? But everyone else is just like, well, there's Christianity, there's Buddhism, there's, you know what I mean? Maybe it is a religion. But in this world, the way is more of a way of... You're following it and you've never needed to be converted. Yeah, a way of looking at the world, you know? So that's kind of cool. I like learning about that, especially the, the fact that there's maker of ways. That would be cool to meet that guy, you know? Aeronaut, the last airbender style. Jesus Christ. All right. So now um, the last thing I wanted to bring up for deep diving world building, let's take a l- little magnifying glass on this, is Raul's foreshadowing entrance. Okay. When cool cat Raul first enters the scene, Jim could have just written, then the cat walked in. But instead he wrote, but instead he wrote, Raul came padding out of the darkness. Silent, as always, offering no explanation of where he had been, as always. So we're left think, left being like, so where the fuck was he? You know what I mean? Like, by saying oh, it, I, by writing that like entrance that. like that, by saying, we don't know where he came from, he came out of the darkness, as always, and he does he's not going to say where he was, as always. So it makes it makes my brain automatically start going, okay, so now he's in... Um, the Spire Arcs guard area. He's making new connections with the cats in the area. He's like, yo, what's up with the Lancasties? And and the Lancaster cats are coming out of the Lancaster mansion going with like mice in their teeth. They're like, oh no, you know, they're doing their thing. They're doing crystals. So they have a lot of power. Nobody really realizes it or whatever, you know? So it's, it's interesting to um, just him putting that in there makes you, well, it makes me think, like there is a lot more going on in the background. And I really like that concept. It actually made me think of like, if I were to write a story or if I wanted to try to write a story, I would have like the, the front story, which is what is in the book. But then in between the chapters, I'd have like the list of all the different characters and what they're doing. It may never show up in the book, but just to keep track. So like, I imagine Jim butchers, like, like, uh, Microsoft Word document has like <laughs> has like the Aeronauts winless and Rowell's story and Rowell's going around all the way to the you know the the back alleys and shit. But yeah, that's um that's chapter five. I liked it. I did too. So Dan, remember about a month ago we were talking about writing a book. Yeah, I wrote a little flavor text for it. Would it be okay if I shared that? Yeah, pull it up, man. Pull it up, Paul. Story time with indie author Justin Mason. Right. Chapter one, choked. The creaky wagon wheel of the trader's caravan groaned and hissed as the wooden cart bumbled down the beaten earth path. Two ivory-stained horses headed the cart and trotted steadily in place to a gentle crack of a whip from the driver. Chase Dorian looked left and right, taking note his surroundings as he entered Fellwood, an area that he knew all too well. He knew the heavy curves to the left of the steep ridges and loose soils that could trip up his horses, the low hanging branches where he must dip his head low and others where he simply needed to scoot a bit to the side of the cart. He knew the patches of 
itch bramble that he must avoid at all costs, and he knew of the hidden spring that he could use to water his horses. He smiled at the thought of the spring and nodded to his horses. They needed it badly. He also knew of the real dangers. He knew where the bandits hid, where they lived, where they looked to strike. He knew of the conversations that they would have, the bows they would aim at him, and the swords and knives they would brandish. He knew the load he was bringing into town to the people who needed food and clothing and tools. He knew because Chase Dorian was in the business of no, and to him, knowledge was more dangerous than the sharpest dagger. Today, the first day of the month, market day in the village over the hills, was the day people waited for all month long. Chase would not miss market day. Today, Chase came prepared. He looked behind him for a moment and saw the spare sack of rice that he had brought. 80 coins, he whispered, a paltry sum to pay for the freedom to trade. He let out a sigh as he noticed three individuals coming out of the tree line behind the cart with bows prepped and drawn, aiming directly at his horses. <sighs> Again with this nonsense. The driver brought the cart to a halt and waited patiently for the three armed bandit types to approach the wagon. They all wore similar buckskin vests and a weird foreign symbols painted in black ash across their chests and arms. One of them, the ugliest, had a bone through his nose. It was a decoration of sorts, a war trophy of battles long past. Fire tongue, Chase called out loudly, paying the first three bandits a little more attention. You know it's me. It's always me. We must do this. I'd prefer not to catch a loose arrow from one of your <clears throat> friends. Then, as though the name summoned him from the depths of the forest, Firetongue stepped out of the heavy shrubbery not far off the road to the left of the caravan. He was tall, very tall, and had hands the size of large hammerheads that looked like they could pummel lesser beings into submission. For a bandit, he was surprisingly well-kept, a detail that Chase always kept in mind when dealing with this particular individual. His shoulders were broad, dark amber eyes held the violent secrets of a life of crime. His black hair had seen better days, but still, for a bandit, he didn't quite look the part. Ooh, I bet you that bandit's a vampire that's working for the vampires in the middle of the city, dude. Yeah, you know, when we talked about that last <laughs> time, I just went and I wrote that, and I was like, you know, I actually kind of have that's a little good. bit of fun with it. But, I, but if I write something, I want to at least share it. Yeah, that's you cool. Um, I mean, just just as an exercise, it's wonderful. You know, uh, I enjoy uh, exercising creativity. I was I was watching uh, some of Brandon Sanderson's like lectures at BYU or whatever, and he yeah, yeah. he brings this up like every time he redoes his lectures. But I really like it. He discusses that like with writing, people are so nervous to get into it because um, they're afraid that people are going to say, "Well, have you published anything?" or blah blah blah. And um, he says. Like it kind of is equate he equates it to like your friends that play basketball uh, in the um, basketball league every Thursday at the YMCA. When are they going to the NBA? Well, they're not. They're just doing it for fun. It's good exercise. It's good for them. Makes them feel good. With writing, that could be the same thing. Just start writing, having fun with it. Hey, if it sucks, it sucks. If it's good, it's cool. Maybe you can work with it. But it's like an exercise for yourself. Makes you feel good. Makes you feel like you've done something. I think that's wonderful. And I'm. I will always encourage you to read on the podcast. I have some notes from that reading that I'd like to share. Of course See what you, you think. Okay, so um, he's cruising down the lane, and you mentioned down the side he's got to watch out for Itch Bramble. I like that a lot. Is Itch Bramble real, or is that, like, in this world? Itch, itch, itch weed's a real thing, yeah. It is? It picks you and it burns, and if you scratch it, it gets worse. Okay, so I've never heard of 
itch bramble before, but I like... I just called it that because I didn't want to call it itch weed. Okay, well, that's what I'm talking about. Like, I really like that concept of, like, putting in to make the world different but familiar, kind of like in Aeronauts Windless when they're mm -hmm. saying stuff like Aeronauts uh, Sunrise and uh, it's it's in-world, but it's familiar enough where you're jumping into it. And Itch Bramble explains exactly what the fuck that is. You know you're not going to supposed to touch that or you're going to get itchy and then you itch it more and it's going to get even more because it's going deeper. Whatever. Anyway, I like that. I like how Darren Chase – so is his name Darren or Chase or is it Darren Chase and he goes by Chase? Uh, what was it? Chase? Darian. Darian Chase. Or Dorian Chase. Dorian. Yeah. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Dorian Chase. And then he goes by Chase. Something like that. But anyway, anyway, I like how he knows everything about the merchant stuff. Chase Dorian. Oh, Chase Dorian. That's his first name is Chase. Okay. I want, I want the name of Ch I like the name Chase. Uh, it's a strong name. Yeah. Um, I like the name Evade. <laughs> but it's not a real name, so no one uses it. Anyway, so I like how he knows everything about the merchant stuff where he's like, he knows how much this is going to sell for. He knows how long it's going to take to get there, blah, 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 blah. It really reminded me of Captain Grimm in that first chapter with Captain Grimm where he's like, he knows how the boat works, blah, blah, blah. And this is a good example of if you read something and you like it, you can use that it's and like steal it for yourself and try it out and test it out and see what it's like. I don't know if that's what you were thinking when you wrote this or if you were uh, pulling some inspiration from Captain Grimm uh, from Jim Butcher's writing, but that's what it felt like. And I liked it because it gets you in the attitude of that character without the character really having to say, oh, man, this is a boring one again. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Now you know exactly what's up. Um it makes you feel like you're in the know without having to um, – it's not like pandering to you, you know. And, um, yeah, those are my notes. I, I liked it. Um, one thing that did stick out to me, one of the bandits had a hand as big as some large hammer heads. That was um, Fire Tongue. Or okay, Fire Tongue. So, like, to me, a hammer head He's just is, a big dude. He's just a big dude. Hammer heads are small to me. Like, maybe change it to Sledgehammer Head. Or or a, or, or a blacksmith's hammer, as big as a blacksmith's just do, hammer. Just do like, a, you know, like a mall, like a splitting mall. Yep. Something like that. Um, okay. Or as wide as wide as a, as a splitting mall, you know, because those are big axes, you know. Nice. Or like nice. for cut, laying down wood or whatever. But it'd have to be, if it's coming from the perspective of the merchant, then he'd, maybe it'd be nice to have something that's like a merchant style reference. Kind of like we were talking about, like if you're a fisherman, you would say things that were kind of like sea references to things. So nice. what would be like something for like you have big hands and a merchant as big as um, as one of my biggest, like donkey's side biggest, packs or something as, like as that. As big as two sacks of coin. Yeah, dude. Big as two sacks of coin I get on every merchant day. Okay, so that's cool. Anyway, um, yeah, I enjoyed that. Thank you for sharing that. So nice. with that... Uh, thank you for joining me, Justin, on this quick episode for chapter five. Next time we're gonna I'm try to read two. That. Next time we'll try to read two chapters. So, um, you know, hopefully next week you got two of them down. If not, we'll just keep doing these quick hitters. So, uh, if you guys want to see more of Justin's stuff, we got all the links in the description below to his books. Um, I didn't put his YouTube channel in there, but we did get a taste of that last week, which was pretty fun, and. Uh, we will check you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Random Book Club Podcast.